Good morning and welcome to each one. I've been uh, blessed to be here this morning so far and uh, just really anticipate our time further as we uh, spend this time together. I just want to say how, uh, I mentioned it this morning, but I just want to say again how encouraging it was for me to be here Wednesday evening and just appreciate the testimonies and uh, just really appreciate the honesty that I sensed, the unity and the oneness of spirit that was very inspiring to me. And uh, I think it seems appropriate that we uh, come together this morning to celebrate the Lord's table. It is a time to remember and to commemorate the death and the suffering of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I never want to lose the sense of mystery that centers around this celebratory event. There's something about it that God, that Jesus established with his disciples that has filtered down through the last 2,000 years. And it still holds a sense of awe and inspiration for us today. As I prayed and studied Thank you, Glenn, for the message this morning. A theme kept surfacing in my mind that I'd like to share with you this morning. And as you see in the bulletin, the uh, title of the message is Burying a Viable Seed. The subject is one that commonly finds resistance among its hearers. It's not the kind of topic that creates warm fuzzies when we talk about it. In fact, many think of it as cold and harsh and find it resistant to the very essence of life. Even Jesus, when he talked about this subject, said that his soul is troubled by it. And so I think we can conclude that if his soul is troubled by it, Ours will probably be as well. And so, as we think about this subject for the next few minutes, I would like to suggest, like Jesus, to look beyond the present call of duty and anticipate the full measure of God's glorification through this process. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of John, chapter 12, if you haven't already. And uh, I'd like to delve into the text to find out what we're talking about. Now, bear in mind this passage of Scripture in John, chapter 12. This context of of this passage is given only four days prior to Jesus being crucified. And I think that's important for us to keep this in mind as we go through this message. This is only four days away. And Jesus, being part of the Godhead, was fully aware of what lay in front of him. He knew what, was going, what he was going to face. And he's struggling with his call of duty. And so 
it may be helpful for us to identify with him in this way. What if God were to give you a message today and tell you that you have only four more days to live? What would you say? What would you do? If you knew that you only had four more days to live, would your message change? Would your lifestyle change? Would you talk about the stuff that Jesus talked about four days prior to his death? Let's read the passage found in chapter 12 of John, the Gospel of John, starting in verse 20, and it goes like this. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also." If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. Verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. Jesus is still speaking. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now it's the judgment of this world. Now it's the ruler of of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Let's pray once more. Father God, as we look at this passage of Scripture and as we think about the the, uh, text and, and the message of the text, Lord, I pray that you would rightly divide the word of truth to us. Help help us to be able to apply it to our lives in a very practical way. And may you receive the glory. In your name we pray. Amen. (laughs) 
The idea had been spoken about for hundreds of years, and many agreed that something needed to be done, but no one took the initiative to do something about it, to undertake the enormous project that was ahead of them. Various plans have been proposed, and many countries had shown interest in the project. But no one stepped forward to take charge. Yet what an advantage it would be for the sailors and for the shipping companies if a shortcut could be found somewhere in Central America that they could cross rather than needing to sail all the right way around the bottom of South America to get to the other side of the Pacific. Finding a way to cut across that narrow strip of land that lay between the Atlantic to the east and the Pacific to the west in the country of Colombia at that time would reduce the the distance, the route between New York City and San Francisco by 18,000 miles round trip. That was huge. And about right that time, the middle 1800s, the gold rush was in full swing out west, and that only accentuated the need for this shortcut. And so various survey teams were sent out between the mid to late or uh, upper uh, 1800s to see if such a feat would be possible. And eventually a route was determined. There were several initial attempts, but those failed rather quickly. And then in the early 1880s, the French committed themselves to this project and put a man in charge of the project that had been successful in overseeing the Suez Canal in Egypt only about 10 or 12 years earlier. The Panama project was a colossal undertaking. It was a huge endeavor. I think at the uh, Continental Divide, the height of the Continental Divide, it was uh, 300 I should have written it down, I'm thinking 326 feet above sea level. There were mountains, mountains to cut through. There were political battles to be fought. There was a huge amount of money that needed to be raised. And after a valiant attempt, the French eventually gave up the project in, 19, in, the 18, uh, in 1890 about 10 years or about eight years after they started. They moved out of the area, leaving behind an unfinished project, a massive amount of machinery, and many buildings that they had constructed for the project. It was obvious that they had underdetermined or underestimated the magnitude of the project. And so nothing happened for the next 12 years or so. In 1903, I believe it was, the United States took over the project. And even then, it would not be complete until 1914. The first year that the canal was opened, a thousand ships passed that way. And compare that to 
back in 2008 when nearly 15,000, 14,700 ships passed through there. So without a question, the Panama Canal was one of the most massive, difficult, and spectacular engineering feats in the history of mankind. Today, it is considered one of the seven wonders of the modern world. However, as with any achievement of this magnitude, it came with a tremendous price. Thousands of men who worked in this harsh and foreign environment poured themselves into the work, and for many of them, it would cost them their lives. It is estimated that over 27,000 men died during that project. The culmination of dangerous working conditions, rock avalanches, and rain-induced mudslides made the project extremely hazardous. But there were two silent foes that were responsible for more deaths than all the other hazards put together. Does anyone know what those were? Yellow fever and malaria. Thousands of men died because of being infected by this disease, the strata disease, which threatened to put the, the project or bring the project to a halt, just the, the disease itself. Um, now, we, what, what we need to keep in mind is that the medical community did not know at that time what caused the disease. And, uh, in fact, the word malaria comes from two Italian words, the words uh, mala and area, meaning bad air. And for years, the prevalent belief was that this disease was simply caused by the misty jungle night air. And um, after many, many men died, eventually a hospital was constructed, and it was, it was operated by a religious uh, group of, uh, of women uh, called the French Sisters of Charity. So these nurses would work night and day to take care of their ailing patients. And with little medical training, they did the best that they could, still under the persuasion that this dangerous misty night air was the perpetual enemy of this dreaded disease, they were very careful to close all the windows and the doors at night in this little hospital, this little sanctuary of theirs, in hopes of warding off this malady. Yet morning after morning, they would return to find their patients in worse conditions, if not dead. It was, it was very discouraging for them, and they felt overwhelmed with what was happening to them. They concluded that somehow the disease was still creeping through the cracks in the windows of that little hospital and, uh, as they slept at night. But then others weren't so convinced. They had done a fine job of, of closing up all the airs and, and keeping that night mist out of, out, of the, out of the building. And yet the problem wasn't going away. 
what was the real cause? Then someone mentioned the lowly ant. These little creatures could be seen snaking across the hospital floors. And as they began to look further, they discovered that some of these ants were actually in the beds of their patients. And they began to suspect that these little critters were the responsible culprits. In fact, the, the evidence seemed so convincing to them that they started an all-out war to completely annihilate the disease-carrying ants. Most of these innocent little ants lost their lives in a feeble attempt to get to the root of the problem, but they simply couldn't stay ahead of the disease. So they, 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 they began to discuss how these malaria-carrying ants could be stopped. And finally, someone proposed a brilliant idea. What if the legs of each bed were placed in a pan of water? Since ants avoid water, this would effectively stop them from traveling up the bed frames and into the beds. And so the plan was embraced by all, and they quickly put it into action, leg by leg. They went throughout the hospital. Each bed was lifted and placed into a pan, in, a, in a pan of standing water. And you can almost imagine the triumph that these nurses felt as they watched these little ants approach this pan of water, come up the sides, see the water, and then turn around and leave. Finally, the foe had been defeated. Yet the dying continued. In fact, if anything, it was getting worse. Finally, in 1997, Ross, Ronald Ross successfully demonstrated that malaria was transferred not by the ants or by the misty night air, but by the lowly mosquito. Imagine how the nurses may have felt when they discovered that awful truth. Their valiant efforts to fight the dreaded disease had unknowingly created an even more deadly environment where the malaria could thrive because mosquitoes need standing water in order to breed. And at the base of each of their patients, they had planted a pan of water in order to stop the disease, which had actually created the perfect atmosphere for the disease to multiply. The very action that was meant for good had become extremely detrimental. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus addresses a principle that life comes from death. Now, he realizes that his earthly ministry is rapidly coming to a close. And so he introduces this concept to those who were with him. I'm struck how he introduces the, the principle. He says that the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now allow me just to make several observations from this statement. First thing is, prior to this time, Jesus had repeatedly stated in the Gospels, particularly in, in this Gospel, that his time had not yet come. 
John, the Apostle John, was one of, of the, or, uh, was the only gospel writer <clears throat> that makes note of these statements. Now, we have indication that the Apostle John and Jesus had a very close relationship. John must have been the feeler of the bunch. He valued the relationship that he had and his friendship that he had with Jesus. In fact, it is he that records that he was the one that lay his head on the breast of Jesus after his first communion. And so it is not surprising that John notes these comments from Jesus. Four times he brings it to our attention. The first one was in John chapter 2, verse 4. And this was the time when his mother and his brothers were at a, at a wedding in Cana, and they ran out of wine. And so his mother came to him and told him that they have no wine. She didn't ask him to give them wine. He just said they have no wine. And his response to her was, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So he was very clear, making a statement that his hour had not yet come. Uh, but, of course, we know the story that he later on went ahead and he, he uh, initiated his first miracle by turning the water to wine. The next time that it is recorded is in John chapter 7. <clears throat> and this was the time that his brothers wanted him to go into the area of Judea and show himself to the local Jews uh, and do some miracles for them so that they would believe on him. Now, Jesus realized that this area was very hostile against him, and he didn't want to go to that place. In fact, he avoided that place, and he told his brothers in verse 6, My hour has not yet come, but your time is always ready. In the same chapter and in the same event, eventually Jesus does go up into Judea, and uh, he goes to the feast, as they invited him to do. And, but he sort of stays in obscurity. He stays in the background, at least for a while. But eventually, <clears throat> he does end up going to the temple, and he begins teaching. And it says that the people are astounded at the things that he said, at his insight. But at the end of his speech, some of them were turning against him, and it says that they sought to take him, but no one hands on him because his hour was not yet come. John 7, verse 30. And then in the next chapter, John chapter 8, was Jesus' encounter with the adulterous woman. And at the end of that encounter, after he had silenced the Pharisees, And after bearing a lot of accusations from them concerning him being illegitimate and having no father, they wanted to kill him, and yet it says, No one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Now, in our text today, for the very first time, John records that his hour had come. It is interesting to note that he repeats this phrase three more times in the next several verse, uh, chapters. 
Four times he records that his, that his time had not yet come, and four times he refers to it that his time had come, his hour had come. That's the first observation. Second observation is that Jesus links glorification with death. When he says that his hour had come, you and I both know that he was referring to his death. How does he weave both death and glory into the same theme? Basically what he was saying in my own terms, I'm going to die so that I can be glorified, so God can be glorified. I don't know about you, but I tend to bristle at the thought of death. There's something innate within me that struggles to live, that wants to live. My human response tends to reason whether there is a way that I can go through the process of glorification without going through the process of death. That's my tendency. This is, what, this is true in the physical as well as in the spiritual. But Jesus says that my hour has come, and God will be glorified through it. The Son of Man should be glorified. And then Jesus goes on to establish a principle that is core to the nature of Christ. I want to read that principle again, what he said in, um, in verse 24, I believe it is. Yes, in verse 24, it says, Most assuredly, I think the key... Uh, the KGV, the King James Version, would use the words, verily, verily, that's actually the words, amen and amen, so be it. Verily, verily, most assuredly, I say, and here's the principle, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. Did you catch the principle? Life comes by death. Something must die if you want your life to bear fruit. This past Wednesday evening, I heard numerous testimonies saying that there are certain areas in your life that you want to change and where you want to grow. I'm always excited to hear those kinds of testimonies. But the stark reality is that there will be no harvest if there is no death. This is not only true in nature, but it is also true in the spiritual. You want to grow in an area of your life, there's something that's got to die. Now Jesus uses the simple grain of wheat as an example. The same would be true of corn and many other seeds. This spring, the farmers around us particularly around our place, took one grain of corn and planted it into the ground and through a process that was not visible to the human eye, a plant grew that produced a whole cob of corn. And some plants, I noticed, even had two cobs of corn. Did that seed of corn actually die? If 
if it did, how in the world was it ever possible for life to come from something that was completely dead? Have you ever thought about that? I thought I'd take Jesus' words to task. Not that I doubted him, but I wanted to understand what he meant when he says that unless a seed dies, it remains alone. What did he mean by that? In the world of seeds, <clears throat> there are two terms to determine, and I feel very uh, elementary here. Uh, Daryl and Willis and some of you men <laughs> probably know a lot more about this. Than they, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it sound like I know what I'm saying. Uh, I did do quite a bit of study on it. Um, but in the world of seeds, there are two terms that determines whether a seed is alive or whether it is dead. When we are talking about a seed being alive, we refer to it as being a viable seed. Is that true? A viable seed. On the other hand, a non-viable seed does not have the biological components needed to bring forth life and so it is impossible for it to grow and sprout. It simply doesn't have the wherewithal to become a plant. And there are several reasons why a seed becomes non-viable. One of them is because of insect predation that can make the seed non-viable. When the larvae from an insect goes into the seed and leeches on the living part of the seed, it causes it to die. Now, the outside still looks like a seed. Nothing has changed on the outside. In fact, oftentimes you can't even tell. But the components inside have died. Harvesting a seed prematurely can render a seed non-viable. So if a seed is underdeveloped, when harvested, they are unable to germinate and thus will never be able to produce other seeds or more seeds. And then the way you store the, the storage conditions of seeds also affects the viability of a seed. If a seed is stored in conditions that are too hot or too humid, it will have a bearing on its ability to reproduce. So there are several reasons why a seed becomes non-viable. Well, there's a huge difference between a viable and a non-viable seed. The principle in our text, now I want you to get a hold of this, okay? The principle in our text is referring to a viable seed. A non-viable seed is already dead. So when something is already dead, it can't die some more. Would you agree with me? When Jesus said, unless a seed dies, he was referring to something that was alive and needed to die. Now this is important because it is a message to all believers. We're not talking about the non-believer in this passage of Scripture. A non-believer is dead. He doesn't have the life of Christ in him. He's dead. So he can't die some more. He's already dead. He needs to become alive in Christ. And so we're talking to believers here. Unless you die, 
There cannot be life. The viable seed has the ability to sprout and grow because within every viable seed is an embryo of living tissue. So when Jesus refers to dying, please understand that there is still a component of living tissue buried somewhere within that seed. The remaining components of the seed are designed to feed, protect, and sacrifice for the embryo. Seeds generally store energy in the form of carbohydrates and fats. And by the way, that's why seeds are very healthy for us. We talk about using whole grain foods. And I remember years ago, uh, I believe it was Dr. Uh, Ham that uh, talked about the... Uh, um, Ken Ham that talked about the uh, the health of eating apple seeds, and I just took him to task. And basically, I eat the whole apple. But he said, "Now what you got to do is you got to make sure and break and crush up the seed in order to get anything valuable out of the seed. Because if you don't, it'll just pass through you. So there's a lot of life in seeds. When the seed sprouts." When, let, let me back up. When, when the seed is, is put in, there are three components that, that is needed for a seed to bring forth life. Water, oxygen, and temperature. And so when a seed is placed into the ground, it absorbs moisture. It has to have enough of moisture to be able to break open that outer shell. And once that, basically the outer shell is just protecting the life within. Once that's broken up, that part of the seed is gone. It no, has no more use, uh, life to it or no, no, no further use for it. But when the seed begins to sprout, the embryo feeds upon this source of energy that is in the seed, these carbohydrates and these fats, they, it, it takes energy from that in order to put roots down for water and leaves up for sunlight. In other words, there are components of energy in a viable seed that are sacrificed or that die as it were in order for new plant to be established. And that's what Jesus was talking about. This is such a beautiful picture of the believer. Jesus Christ is the embryo, as it were, within the believer. He is that living source that has the potential to produce much harvest. There is nothing in us that can produce a harvest. It is Jesus Christ. In order for our lives to produce, uh, in, in order for our lives to produce, as is instructed in our text, we must have the life of Christ within us. That is first and foremost. The principle that Jesus was addressing here is the process of being sanctified, or the process of becoming more like Him. This process requires for something to die 
for us to die to ourselves in order for him to be able to bear more fruit. Now, there are, certain, there are certain groups of people that I want to address this morning, various groups of people that, uh, that apply this principle in different ways. The first one is the non-viable uh, individual. And I've already touched on that. I'll just touch on it a little bit more. If we don't have Christ in our lives, we are like the non-viable seed that has an outer has an outer shell it's like having the outer shell of a seed but the inner part is damaged or completely gone there's no part of that seed that is alive we simply do not have the source or the components needed to bring reproduction or the process of reproduction these are the kinds of individuals that can go to church every sunday they can teach sunday school they can be a member of a congregation. They can go and feed the poor. But if you do not have the life of Christ within you, you're just an empty shell. It does not matter in the end. In the end, it will not bear fruit. You are like the non-viable seed that has no ability to bear more. A true relationship with Jesus Christ is really where it starts. There's the kind of individual that is viable, but that is dormant. It is also possible for an unplanted, viable seed to lay dormant for an extended period of time in the right environment. However, eventually, it will lose its ability to reproduce if it remains unplanted. The comparison, I think, is like the individual that wants enough of Jesus to escape the consequences of hell, yet they want to hang on to the things that feed the flesh. They have a preoccupation with worldly things. They are unwilling to be planted with Christ. They don't want to be or they don't want to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. These individuals give lip service, as it were, and yet they they that they, they give lip service that they are born again, yet they feed their hearts and their minds with things that are not of Christ. In other words, they refuse to be planted and die to self, and there certainly is no harvest. Romans chapter 8 addresses this. And I'd like to read a few verses from Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 5. For those who live according to the sorry, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So there are those individuals 
who want enough of God to be, quote, safe, and yet they want to feed their own pleasures, their selfish ambitions. And the conclusion is you cannot please God, according to this passage of Scripture. There's another type of individual, and that is the individual who is disciplined, but, but the non-viable individual. See, there's, there's a group of individuals that, that live very disciplined lives, and they put to death, as it were, many selfish motives, yet have not the life of Christ in them. <clears throat> I remember being struck many times in, my, in, my, in times that I've witnessed individuals and pointed out their need of Christ, and how many times individuals say, I'm a good person. I, I'm not a bad person. And you know, if you look on the outside, that's right. They're probably a lot more cleaned up than a lot of Christians in some ways, more disciplined. Maybe they put to death more things. Very involved in community and, and in humanitarian needs. Very much involved in those areas. But Christ is missing. These kinds of individuals are like the nurses in the opening story that thought they were right on track in bringing malaria to its knees, but in reality, their actions only participated in fostering the disease. They had the right desire, but they focused on the wrong source. In other words, they put to death the wrong insect, as it were. It is possible to put to death things in our lives without bearing much fruit. Take, for instance, the person who is very disciplined in his or her spending habits. He or she may be very frugal and very disciplined in how he spends and says no or dies to many things, but only to be motivated by, covet uh, by covetousness. It's the same thing. Dying has little value if we die to the right thing. Unless we die to the right thing. Jesus addressed this in our text in verse 25, John 12, 25. He addressed this when he said that, that uh, he who loves his life will lose it. This describes the individual who only serves himself. So you can be disciplined, you can die to self and still be non-viable. The last group of people that I want to talk about is the ones that Jesus really wanted to address. It's the viable and the fruitful individual. What God really desired for individuals is to be both viable and fruitful. But this process only happens through death. Something must die for there to be life. We chafe. Typically we chafe at the thought of death. There's just something that is within us that wants to live. And so when we tend to think of all the things that we need to give up in the process of becoming sanctified, we, we want to shy away from it. 
but I want to call you to a higher challenge. I want to I call you to think of life being about Christ rather than about you. You see, as long as you focus on yourself and what you have to give up or what I have to give up, the price seems very high. But I want to call you to think and shift your thinking to think about, about life being about Christ, not about myself. When we make Christ the focal point of our lives, when my frame of thinking begins to reason in terms of being life being about him rather than about me, it completely changes my perspective of life and of giving up and of dying. It's like, what? How can I become more like you? How can I glorify you? At this point, it then only matters what matters most is what matters to Christ. That becomes the most important factor. This is the way that Jesus thought. He thought in those terms. You see, his flesh did not want to go through the crucifixion. No one in his right mind, all of us, and Jesus included, no one would desire to go through what he knew he had to go through. In fact, we read it this morning in, in uh, verse 20, 27. Jesus said, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I mean, he's, he's, he's struggling with the fact of what he had to go through, dying. <clears throat> had Jesus only thought in terms of himself, would he have gone to the cross? I don't know. I suspect not. If he would have only thought of himself, I suspect he would not have followed through to the cross. But the rest of the verse gives indication of where his focus was on. Look at the end of verse 25. But for this purpose I came to this hour Father, glorify your name. His ultimate passion was to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. And when we can come to that place in our lives, that our deepest passions, our greatest motivations of our lives is not what can happen to me or what benefits me or what, what pleases me, but to glorify the Father, then dying becomes easy. Or possible, let's say, at least possible. When the passions of our lives shifts to Christ's name being glorified, a lot of things that are important to our lives now wane away. They fade away. I'd like to read a passage, three verses in Colossians, as a closing uh, reminder of who we are in Christ. Colossians chapter 3. And as you think about sharing the Lord's table this morning and the process that Jesus had to go through to give us life, does it not call something within us to also die to self in order that more people can experience what we're experiencing this morning? Life is not just about us.
It's about others. It's about bringing more fruit into his kingdom. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then you shall also appear with him in glory. When we die with Christ, like it says here, and we set our affections on things above, set our mind on things above, not on things around us, not on things that please me, then it is possible for Christ to produce a yield of harvest. Let's pause for prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your kindness, your goodness to us. Thank you for your love and mercy to us. Thank you for this principle that you have laid out before us. And just realizing, Father, that our tendency is to be selfish and to not want to give up the things, not die to the things that uh, are important to us. Lord, help us to redirect our way of thinking. I pray, Father, that our dying to self would feed your fuel and cause you to to uh, grow a harvest that is beyond our imagination. Lord, as we, as we come to the Lord's table this morning now, and as we think of what you did for us, it creates a heart of gratitude. We're so thankful, Father, for all that you have done. Lord, I pray that as we share this time together that you would be glorified. As we walk away from here, Father, Help us not to leave the, uh, the things that we've heard here in the, in, in the sanctuary, but that we would take it with us and uh, that, we would, that we would continue to die to self and that you would be glorified in our lives. Guide and keep us in the name we pray. Amen.